explain to you. I want to talk to you today about a critical component to your Christianity, and that is God's sovereignty in our journey of faith. God's sovereignty in our journey of faith. Challenges will inevitably occur on our journey. Big waves may rock our boat, and at times our boat may seem utterly unseaworthy. Some of our fellow oarsmen may well have a wobbly and abruptly abandoned ship. In those times of tumult and trial, we must cling to God's sovereignty. When we speak of God's sovereignty, what we mean is this, that God's will will prevail. God's will will prevail. When our lives are battered by Job-like trials, we must remember the words of Job in Job 42.2. Job said, I know that you can do all things and that no plan of yours can be thwarted. When it looks like righteousness is receding and the wicked are winning, we should remember the words of Isaiah 46, starting at verse 9. Isaiah 46, 9, Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, and from the ancient times what is still to come. I say, now listen to this, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. So God's sovereignty is the great comfort for the Christian who can rest in it. But Christians who do not understand God's sovereignty will be anxious, they will be fearful, and they will be joyless. And why is that? Well, because God's sovereignty can help us remember that even what man means for evil... God can use for good. God's sovereignty can help us to consider it all joy when we face various trials because we know those trials were not accidental or haphazard, but it is through those very trials that that God can forge our character and our temperament can be tempered into what he wants us to be. And so with that in mind, with God's sovereignty in mind, I'd like you to turn to Joshua chapter 5. When our time's together, we've been journeying through the book of Joshua, and we have now come to the fifth chapter. And we are going to be looking at God's sovereignty in our journey of faith. And as we turn in the word of the Lord to Joshua chapter 5, let's turn to the Lord of that word and ask him to bless our time together in his text. Lord Jesus, we invite you as Lord of the church to speak to your people. We believe your word that says that man does not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We believe that no prophecy of scripture had its origin in man, but men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We believe that all scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting, and training in righteousness so that uh, my brothers and sisters here and myself can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so, Lord, would you equip us today? Would you arm us today? Would you... Would you renew our minds today uh, that we would be able to rest in your sovereignty, that we would see your sovereignty over enemies, over timing, uh, over any and all situations, even desperation, that we would be faithful to trust and obey because there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey, Uh, that we wouldn't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication we would present our requests to you and that your peace would guard our hearts in Christ Jesus. Please, Lord, use this to move us to trust and to follow 
And that as we do that, you would be the kind of God you've been through every page of Scripture, gracious and merciful, and uh, that you would bless us. Uh, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So the Word of God says in Joshua chapter 5. Joshua chapter 5. Now, when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how God had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until we had crossed over. Remember that was last time we were together. Israel crossed over the Jordan at full flood stage. Once all of the foes saw this, the Bible says their hearts melted and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. And at that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeah Haraloth. Now, this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, remember they had been slaves for 400 years, all those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, they died in the desert on the way after leaving Egypt because they refused to have the faith to enter the promised land, so God was going to make them wander, and for 40 years they wandered till that generation perished. Verse 5, all the people that came out of Egypt, well, they had been circumcised, because the law said so, but all the people born in the desert during the 40-year journey from Egypt had not. So this disobedient generation was disobedient in circumcising their male sons in the 40 years they wandered. Verse 6, the Israelites had moved about in the desert for 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them they would not see the land that he had solemnly promised their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. And so he raised up their sons in their place, and these were the ones that Joshua circumcised. And they were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way, the 40-year journey. And after the whole nation, that is all the men of Israel, had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. And then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the place has been called Gilgal to this day. And that sounds like roll in Hebrew. That's what Gilgal kind of uh, is implying there. Verse 10, on the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal, where their reproach of Egypt was rolled away, on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. And that's really important. That's only happened twice in Hebrew history before this. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. That's a huge change in their diet because what have they been eating for 40 years? Manna. So verse 12, and then the manna stopped the day after, not the day before, the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of Canaan. And so the book of Joshua chronicles God's people's conquest of the promised land. And previously in our time together, we observed that the Israelites crossed the Jordan River, and the Jordan River was at full flood stage. So you can cross the Jordan anytime except for when it's at full flood stage. You can pretty easily get across the Jordan at its shallowest and narrowest points. But at full flood stage, it's 12 feet high and 100 feet across. You're not getting across. And God said go when it was impossible to go. That's when he said go. God had a counterintuitive plan. And... Uh, the plan wasn't, hey, let's send an engineering battalion. That's how we did it in the Marines. When you got to cross a big raging river, you send the engineering battalion, and they build barges that turn into bridges, and then you get the bullets, bandages, and 
people across. But that's not how God said do it. If you remember from last time, God said, don't take the engineers, take the priests. Hmm. <laughs> and, and, and take the priests, not in a boat, not in a barge, but just, just have them walk in the raging river at full uh, at flood stage. And why don't you carry the Ark of the Covenant? You see the problem in this? <laughs> They're going to get swept away. They're going to get flooded, right? So the priests were to take this precious cargo, and they were to go straight into the raging river and trust that somehow, some way, uh, God would have the waters part. And he didn't have it part until their sandals hit the water. It's not like as you walk towards it, oh, look, miracle. It was, oh, look, disaster. <laughs> All the way up to the point when their tender tootsies got wet. Crazy as the plan sounded, it worked. It worked fabulously. It worked because God had designed that plan. And now the Israelites were finally in the promised land. They crossed the Jordan, which was that uh, eastern barrier, and they're now into the promised land. And, and so you've got to remember this impenetrable physical barrier of the Jordan River at full flood stage. This was what their enemies were counting on. We don't have to worry about Israelite invasion until the waters recede. We have several months before the Israelites can attack. And by the time they attack, we can pre-position our forces, and when they come across fording the river, we'll pelt them with arrows, and then we'll hit them on the beaches, and we'll wipe them out, right? Here's the problem. Israel crossed the river when there were no defenses, because the river was the defense, and they crossed as a people in one day. God's plan that seemed crazy was the best plan that could possibly have been envisioned. So fear grips the Canaanites' heart because in a single day, the sovereign power of God held back the mighty raging rivers of Jordan all the way to Adam. So there's this huge movement of God. And so the Bible says fear grips the Canaanites' hearts. Israel has the unexpected advantage and the Canaanites are caught utterly on the back foot. Now, any general worth his salt would say, press the attack. If you ever have tactical advantage, if the enemy is in fear and doesn't know that you're here, that's when you come and you attack. And so God said, nope. Nope, that's not how we're going to do it. Instead of pressing the attack, God's plan was, hey, let's utterly incapacitate the entire Israeli army. That was his plan. Uh, <laughs> God called his people to consecration, not mobilization. God called his people to circumcision. And this would render the Israelites defenseless for a few days. You can kind of do the math there. If your entire army gets circumcised for a few days, you're not combat effective. And, you know, if you're defenseless, then God's plan is utterly senseless from their perspective. Why would you do this? Why didn't God ask them to be circumcised when they were over on the other side? when the river would protect them from their enemies. God didn't let them be circumcised until they got into the land. Why ask the people to voluntarily make themselves vulnerable to utter annihilation on the enemy's side of the Jordan? It's a good question, isn't it? And this brings us to our first point on the sovereignty of God in our journey of faith. And it's this, number one, God's sovereignty does not negate our responsibility to faith, and obedience. God's sovereignty does not negate our responsibility to faith and obedience. Eight of the 12 verses we're looking at this morning, two-thirds of our passage deal with the reality that God's sovereignty does not negate our responsibility to faith and to obedience. When we speak about God's sovereignty, 
Do not inject the idea of our passivity. That is, because God is sovereign, I don't have to do anything. Oh no, that's not how the Bible understands God's sovereignty. The Bible repeatedly teaches that ultimately it's all up to God. That God has a plan and we have a part. God has a plan and we have a part. We see this in 2 Thessalonians 2.13. From the beginning, God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit through belief in the truth. And so Jesus did it all, all to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain, but he has watched it white as snow. And yet, even though he did it all, he said on the cross before you and I were ever born to tell us die, it is finished. Each of us must personally repent and believe the good news. You see, God has a plan and we have a, a part. That's true in salvation and that's true in every other aspect of the Christian life. Um, the Bible says uh, that God's sovereignty doesn't negate our responsibility to faith and obedience. We see this in Ephesians 2, which explains that you're saved by grace through faith. Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's workmanship, it's God's plan, created in Christ Jesus and to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God saves us, but he has a plan in saving us. We're not saved by works, we're saved for works. So whose workmanship are we? Well, it says we're God's workmanship. We're created to do something. And that something is good works that will glorify the Savior and edify our neighbor. That's the plan of God, and we have a part. Now, it's critically important we understand that God's sovereignty doesn't negate our responsibility to faith and obedience. In the Bible, it's clear that God provides but he also says that all hard work shall bring a profit. He says a man shall not eat if he shall not work. Now, if that's if he can get a job. That's if he's healthy to have a job. But here's God who's providing. He provides for the birds of the air, and they have to go out and pick the berries. He provides the berries. They must do their part. Does that make sense? Uh, we see the same thing. God uh, is reaching the nations. God is doing that, and yet he calls us to be his witnesses and to go out and make disciples. God is reaching the nations and we have a part. The Holy Spirit, the Bible says, will teach us all truth. And yet he calls us to study the word, to preach the word, to obey the word. God's sovereignty does not negate our responsibility to faith and obedience. Now, so far, we've really emphasized the latter part, that God's sovereignty doesn't negate our responsibility to obedience. But I want to also stress the first part. God's sovereignty does not negate our responsibility to faith. Hebrews 11.6, does anyone know that verse? Close, that's Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11.6 is without faith, it's impossible to please God. How likely are we as Christians to please God without faith? It's impossible. It's not unlikely. It's not difficult. It's impossible. And then he says in Hebrews 11 that we must, if we're going to please God, we, we must exercise faith in him. And he defines that. He says we must believe he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And that means there are going to be times where the plan of God is illogical to us, even impossible to us. Remember the Jordan? That was an impossible plan. 
Now they come across the Jordan, and what's the first thing God says? Render the army incapable of combat. They don't know the people's hearts have melted. They assume there's a massive counterattack coming. And God says, incapacitate your army. So God's sovereign plan, if he wants to be putting faith in us, he must put us in positions where faith is necessary. God's sovereign plan will purposely place the Christian in positions that require faith in God. The Israelites were told to circumcise their army, not from the safety of the other side, but only after they had come to where they could be pipped in an instant. Now, I'm sure God's command seemed rather ludicrous to the Israelites, but God's plan is often like that because God's sovereignty never negates our responsibility to faith and obedience. And before we dig deeper, I've got to talk a little bit about a sort of a delicate subject, and that's the subject of, of circumcision. What, what's the deal with circumcision anyway? All right, well, we preach through the Bible. <laughs> this is where we are in the Bible. I didn't write the Bible. I just teach the Bible. So here we go. All right. So in Genesis 17, God explained to a man named Abram that he was going to be a new person, Abraham. And he was going to have, God had special plans for Abraham and all of his progeny. Uh, the plan was this. God told Abram, you're going to have a special new name, Abraham. And you will be a special new nation, Israel. And you're going to get some special real estate, the land of Canaan. And I would like for you to bear a special sign of the covenant of this fact. And Abraham probably thought, sweet, what's the sign? Am I going to wear a big piece of jewelry? I belong to God. Am I going to have a big ring, God's man? Am I going to have a, you know, like a, like a, 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 a phylactery of the law festooned on my forehead so when people see me, they see the Ten Commandments? And God's like, well, it's a little more intimate than that. Um, what I'm going to do, the plan, the sign of the covenant, yeah, is uh, you're going to circumcise all the males of your clan. Uh, this is going to be a painful and personal act of obedience. Why circumcision? Seems like there's a lot of things you could have chosen. That seems like kind of a curious one. Why this sign? Because God is sovereign and God understood and he's the all-wise God. And he knew his people were headed to a land called Canaan. And what was Canaan utterly and overwhelmingly gripped in? Wickedness and perversion. Primarily sexual, but not exclusively. The worship of their gods involved uh, uh, perversion sexually. Canaanite religion meant that you went up on a gomo to a high place to get the attention of the gods. And you had public intercourse with the priestesses, uh, the, the, the female false priests, uh, who were prostitutes, basically. And what you were doing was you were saying, look, we're being fertile, God. Asherah and Baal, the male and the female gods. And, and we're being fertile, so you need to make the land fertile. You need to bring the rain. And God had said that the sin of the Canaanites has reached full measure. That I, I've had enough of this. They would, they would burn their children alive in, in sacrifice to Molech. They would take their own children after they were fertile and say, make the land fertile. And they would incinerate their children. They were very wicked. And there was much perversion in the way that they worshipped. And God said, you're going to go in this land. And so I'm going to give you a sign of the covenant that's going to help you not deviate. The circumcision as a sign of the covenant would mean that a strange saint would be given pause. You see, if God's people who are forbidden to intermarry with the Canaanites, if they say, we're going to marry her anyway, because she's pretty and I like her, so I'm going to marry this Canaanite. And on their wedding night, there's going to be some explaining to do. 
She's going to go, you look different than my brothers <laughs> when I change their diaper. Do you follow? Like, this is going to real quick go, what's wrong with you people? Um, should they decide to engage in a dalliance and worship on a mountain with a priestess? The, the priestess is going to go, what's wrong with you? You look different. And this was supposed to give them pause to go, you know what? I shouldn't be doing this. <laughs> he was helping them in giving them this sign. Circumcision is a sign of the covenant was a God-given help to keep God's people on the straight and narrow. And circumcision also had hygienic benefits in a world with limited water and infrequent bathing. Medically, the practice seems to keep down infection. Uh, so God's sign of circumcision was spiritually beneficent. It was medically beneficent. But you know what? It required faith. And it required obedience. They didn't know that it was medically helpful. Uh, they didn't know it was spiritually helpful. They just knew it hurt. And it would make them weird. They would become, as the Bible says, a peculiar people. You're going to be different. And they had to choose. That's okay, God. I'm going to choose to walk in faith and in obedience. Our passage explains that this particular generation had not been circumcised. Their parents who escaped from Egypt, they had been circumcised in Egypt, but their parents, 40 years of wilderness wandering, they didn't follow God, they had to drop dead in the desert. One of the things they didn't do is they didn't circumcise their children. So God had arranged that the child would be circumcised on the eighth day. Now, there's a whole reason for that. You can Google why that's important. You have certain things that happen in the body and happen in the blood where make coagulation easier. God knew exactly what he was doing by the eighth day. There's vitamin K and things that happen in the body. and You can Google all that. But it also meant that you didn't really remember the trauma of this. You're eight days old. How old are these people? Uh -huh. They're full-grown adult males. Um, Disobedience brought consequences. So the people that decided to be obedient in this uh, submission to this intimate, incapacitating, unpleasant procedure, you're going to have the full uh, force and effect of it. Now, here's the really interesting thing. All of the Israelite males did this. Everybody. As many as a million men were involved in this event. And the place became known as Gibeath Harlot, which sounds really nice in Hebrew. It means hill of foreskins. Hebrews graphic, and it tells the truth. And if you have this million procedure, you're going to have leftover bits. And that's what they call the place. Because not one single Israeli said, no, thank you. Everyone trusted and obeyed. Everyone. Now think about their parents. No one trusted and obeyed. This generation said, I don't care what they did. As for me and my house... We'll serve the Lord. And so they realize that God's sovereignty doesn't negate our responsibility to faith and obedience, even when it requires significant sacrifice. Because there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to, what did you sing? It's the reason we sing that song, because it's biblical. They obeyed God, but now they have a new problem. Their army is utterly incapacitated. And they're precariously situated right in the heart of the enemy's territory. And that brings us to our second point today. God is sovereign over our enemies. Still going to have enemies. Still going to be threatening. But God is sovereign 
even over our enemies. Look at verse 1. Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until we had crossed over, their hearts melted and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. God is sovereign over our enemies. Israel's incapacitated physically, so God incapacitates their enemies psychologically. So they didn't want to go to battle. Friends, when the lion growls, when Herod unsheathes his sword, you need to remember God is sovereign over our enemies. Bear that in mind. When you go back to the book of Job, every time Job is tested, every time the devil wants to harm him, his, his family, his finances, his physical well-being, every time the devil wants to do that, who did he ask for permission for first? He had to go to God and say, can I do this? There was no point where the devil had the authority on his own to do it. He had to ask permission from God to do it. And so at some point, all of us find ourselves in the fiery furnace. And I need to remind you that the hand of God sits on the thermostat. He knows how much. He knows how long. He knows what he is doing. If we are the clay and he is the potter and in order to make you useful you have to go in the kiln he knows the difference between putting you in so that you're hardened so you become useful and when you are burnt to a crisp and are incinerated he knows the difference he's the potter we're the clay so that means what man may intend for evil god can use for because he's sovereign even over our enemies so yeah Cindy and Sally Snotrag may make life difficult, but God may use that to make you better. You may learn to be persevering. You may learn to be gracious. You may learn to pray for those who sin against you. You may learn to, to pray for God to bless those who persecute you. You'd never learn that if you didn't have people who persecuted you. You follow? Hmm. Now, that brings us to point three. God is sovereign not just over our enemies. God is also sovereign over his promises to us and his purposes for us. God is sovereign over his purposes and his promises. His promises to us and his purposes for us. Look at verse 9. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the place has been called Gilgal. That's why we didn't know that name, the hill of something. We call it Gilgal. And in the rest of the Bible, they're going to call it Gilgal. And, and there's a reason for this. For 40 years, the Egyptians had sort of been laughing at the Israelites. Um, the Egyptians were still smarting. Their Pharaoh was killed. Their firstborn sons were killed. All the plagues came against them. And then their army was destroyed in the sea when the wheels came off their plan, right? The Israelites went through the Red Sea. They were stuck between the Red Sea and the Pharaoh seeing red and God part of the Red Sea that had never happened before. They went through it. And Pharaoh said, if they can do it, we can do it. And they got into it and God said, I'm not protecting you. And he took their wheels off their chariots so they're stuck in the middle. And he said, see, recede. And they were gone. And the superpower was obliterated at that moment. And so the Egyptians looked with somewhat of a sneering delight when the Israelites lacked the faith to go into the promised land. Because for 40 years they wandered around, dropping dead in the wilderness. And so you can sort of imagine the Egyptian equivalent of the late night comedian saying, look at those Israelites, no leeks, no onions, no gardens, no nothing. They still have the same shoes they had when they left us. 
You could see it, right? Hey, you remember when we made them make bricks without straw? They're nobody. Some God you have, some promises you have, all you have is a cave in Macbeela and 40 years of blisters on your feet from walking. I'm assuming they had a New Jersey accent. I don't know, but that's my assumption. We lived in New Jersey for a while. Because God's people trusted and obeyed, because they risked annihilation by submitting to voluntary incapacitation, the newly named Hill of Foreskins got another new name, Gilgal which is a wordplay because it's the Hebrew word for roll, sounds very much like Gilgal. And God is saying, I'm rolling away the derision, the reproach of the Egyptians. Who took away the reproach of Egypt? The Bible says God did that. The Israelites obeyed, and then God rolled away the reproach. Look at verse 9. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So this place has been called Gilgal to this day. Friends, God is sovereign over his promises to us and his purposes for us. Now, who were these Hebrews? Let's remember. According to scripture, they were a stiff-necked and rebellious people. Can you relate? According to scripture, they were slaves for 400 years. Uh, They had been vagabonds for 40 years. But God had a sovereign purpose for them, and so he had made sovereign promises to them. They were sovereignly chosen to be a great people with a great land, who in time would be a great blessing to the world. Because the greatest gift that will ever come is the king of kings. And he will first be known as king of the Jews. Is through these people, all people shall be blessed. So God has made promises to us as the church of Jesus Christ. And so just as it was true for the Hebrews, so too it is true for me and you, if you are in Christ, that God is sovereign over his promises to us and his purposes for us. So we are now the adopted sons and daughters of the high king of heaven. We are his children. We are heirs, heirs to God and co-heirs to Christ, according to the word of God. Uh, We may stumble as sinners, but God calls us saints. The naughtiest book in the New Testament is the church in Corinth. And he says to the saints at Corinth. And they look like a lot more like sinners than they do saints. But but God looks at us and he looks at me. And to see me, he has to see Christ on the cross. He looks at the righteousness of Christ is in me. He's in you if you're in Christ. And so to the sinners at Corinth, the Bible says to the saints at Corinth. And then he says, why don't you look more like saints than sinners, right? He cleans them up for the next 16 chapters. We may stumble as sinners, but God calls us saints. We may not deserve his love, but we're lavished by his grace, the Bible says. You may not feel like God ought to continue putting up with you. I'm more amazed that God puts up with me than he saved me, because at least when he saved me, I didn't know any better. Now I know a lot, and still, like Paul, Paul says, the things I want to do, I I don't always do. And the things I don't want to do, I often do. So you may not feel like God ought to continue putting up with you, but if you're in Christ, Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Which is why you can rest assured that he who began a good work in you 
will carry it on to completion until the return of Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible says in Philippians. If you put your faith in Christ, he's invested a third of himself in you and he's coming back for that investment. Now, just as it's true that God is sovereign over his promises and his purposes, so too it is true, point four, God is sovereign over his timing. God is sovereign over his timing. Now, you and I, we see a situation and we go, well, how long, O Lord? And we tend to think the Lord is slow in keeping his promises. We struggle to wait patiently on the Lord. We struggle to be still and know that he is God. We fidget and we fret that maybe God has forgotten us, forgotten our country, forgotten our age. Like the disciples on the boat as it was overcome with the wind and the waves, we begin to worry when we think Jesus is sleeping and we ask, Lord, don't you care? That's what they asked. Don't you care that we're all going to drown? Jesus was there, but from their perspective, he was utterly indifferent. Lord, don't you care? And the answer is Jesus cared. Jesus sovereignly spoke and the wind and the waves instantly obeyed. But here's the thing. You and I have to remember God is sovereign over his timing. I want you to look again very carefully at the text. Verse 10, on the evening... Of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. Do you know when they had to do that? On a certain day, in a certain month. They couldn't do it any other day. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, the unleavened bread, the roasted grain, and the manna stopped. The day after they ate this food from the land, there was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of the land. Those verses show us that God is sovereign over his timing. For 400 years, they cried out, and then God acted. For 40 years, they wandered, and finally the last of the unfaithful generation perished. And so God sent them across the Jordan at what seemed to be the worst time, full flood stage, the worst time. But it was the perfect time for several reasons. Number one, the enemy didn't expect an attack. So they weren't sitting waiting on the borders of the Jordan to kill everyone. Number two, the Israelites had to be circumcised and have time to heal before they could celebrate the Passover. Because in order to celebrate the Passover, you had to be in obedience to the law, which meant you had to be circumcised. Okay, how many times had the Israelites celebrated the Passover in the history of the Bible prior to this time? It's a good question. And the answer is twice. They did it once in Egypt at the very first Passover, right? And they did it at Mount Sinai in Numbers chapter 9. And after that, they were on the wilderness wanderings. And nobody was circumcised so they couldn't partake of the Passover. But in God's perfect timing, God put them in the promised land and he had them circumcised and then they were fully healed so that exactly on the 14th day of Nisan, the very day that they were supposed to celebrate the Passover, the entire nation was now able to do so. God moved in 440 years, slavery and captivity and wilderness wandering. He moved all the pieces so that his people were at the exact spot, at the exact moment, exactly healed from their exacting act of consecration so they could celebrate the Passover on the exact day the law required. Who did that? God. Down to the last detail. God did that. 
Friends, God is sovereign over his timing. We often wonder, God, why are you waiting? (laughs) Why is this taking so long? Why are we not there yet? Why has this not come through and that not happened? But we can take comfort in the fact that God is sovereign over his timing. And finally, we see in the passage number five, God is sovereign over our needs. God is sovereign over our needs. Many times we agonize, well, how's this going to work? We don't have the resources to do what God is asking. And so we sort of freak out and we think we need to scramble to get our own resources to survive because we forget that God is sovereign over our needs. Now pay attention real quick because you're going to miss this as a 21st century Zimbabwean. Joshua lived in the Bronze Age. So what was the technology of the Bronze Age? It was bronze. That was the highest technology they had. After the Bronze Age comes the Iron Age. They're going to transition in the days of Samuel. The Philistines are going to have iron. They're going to go from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age. It's going to be one of the reasons why the Philistines were so powerful in battle because they knew how to manipulate iron. But these guys are in the Bronze Age. So what kind of knife do you think the Hebrews had? Bronze knives, okay? Bronze Age. And God said, I don't want you to use bronze knives to circumcise everybody. He said, use flint knives. Look at verse 2. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make what kind of knives? Flint knives. God was very specific. Throw away the best technology you have and use rocks. It's basically what he said. Make flint knives to circumcise the Israelites again, meaning the ones that were never circumcised from before. Flint was readily available right where they were standing. When they crossed the Jordan, do you know what was sitting there? A lot of flint. (laughs) They could easily find obsidian, which is what flint is, lying on the ground. Pick up a rock that's there waiting for you. Use that. Now, why should you use that? Well, flint knives are sharpened by chipping away at the edge of the obsidian stone. Now, when you chip away at a rock, you end up getting clean, sterile stone because what's above it has been discarded, right? And so stone doesn't have bacteria that lives in it or viruses. You're about to do a medical procedure. You need a sterile instrument. What does God provide? A sterile instrument. Therefore, Israel's circumcision was performed by instruments possessing comparable sterility to a surgical scalpel today. And it had far greater sharpness than any Bronze Age knife would have. I want you to notice God provided exactly, exactly what was needed. Surgical precision for the blade, surgical sterility for the process. God literally led them to where they could find it on the ground. Because they need to have a million of these. So he takes them to where there would be plenty of these. But it's not just a special surgical sanitary circumcision tool in enough abundance to do a million men, but God also put them in the promised land where there was already produce for them to consume. Who had planted the produce? Their enemies, who were too afraid to come out and attack. So now you have a million men who need to eat, and their women and children, And there's food sitting there. Food the enemy grew. Specifically and significantly, there was grain. 
which they could grind because they needed to make unleavened bread because you have to have unleavened bread to celebrate the Passover. But they don't have any grain. What have they been eating for 40 years? Manna. What do they have today that they didn't have yesterday? Grain. Why? Because they needed to be circumcised. Here's all the obsidian. And they needed grain. Look at verses 10 and 12. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, Passover, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, that specific spot, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. But then the manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land, and there was no longer any manna for the Israelites ever again. But that year they ate the produce of Canaan. God provided food for commemorating his deliverance in the Passover. God provided instruments in abundance for consecration through circumcision. He provided all that, but something stopped. What was it? The manna stopped. The manna stopped. Why did the manna stop? Because it wasn't needed anymore. Because miraculous provision was no longer necessary. They could eat from the produce of the promised land. God had provided leeks and onions when they stayed where? In Egypt as slaves. God had provided water from rocks. He had provided manna from heaven. When they got sick of that, he provided quail until they ate their fill and didn't want it anymore. Do you remember all these stories? God provided everything they needed. And many of the things they didn't need, they just wanted. And now God provides grain from land they hadn't sown and water from wells they never dug. In the future, Israel's going to feed itself through the diligence of its own harvesting. But every step of the way, God had been providing. Now, here's the thing about humans. You and I get very jittery when the way God provided yesterday changes today. When we move from leeks to manna, we freak out. It's not leeks and manna. It's not leeks, it's manna. And then when the manna stops, we freak out, don't we? But God is sovereign over our needs, and he may change how he meets our needs. Maybe God provided from you for a, from a business that your family owned for two or three generations, and now that business isn't there anymore. Maybe God provided for you from an investment that you have watched provide and now is gone. Maybe God had you work at a once stable company which previously put your food on the table, but now putting food on the table is an unsteady succession of making a plan. There's still food on the table. You just don't know how that's going to work. The means change. At one point, the means was a slave's wages of leeks and onions to then manna from heaven, uh, from a, a steady paycheck to a series of how is this going to work? And yet God is sovereign over our needs. We must cling to the biblical reality of God's sovereignty in our journey of faith. He's sovereign over our enemies. He's sovereign over our needs. He's sovereign over his timing. He's sovereign over his promises to us and purposes for us. We must remember, though, that God's sovereignty doesn't negate our responsibility to faith and obedience. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there's so much meat in this 12-verse passage. 
And it's one of those passages that we read, and maybe because of the ick factor or the cultural distance, we think, why is this in the Bible? What could this have to do for us? But you tell us that all these things were written for our, that through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And so, Lord, today we've been confronted with what is an awkward text and an intimate text and in some ways a difficult text. And we're reminded that you often put us in positions that require faith, that you put us in positions of grave vulnerability, that if you don't show up, we're going to fall apart. We're going to be taken out. Our enemies are going to overwhelm us. Our kids are not going to eat. And so we see that because without faith, it's impossible to please you. So, Lord, help us to remember that you exist and that we would earnestly seek you because you reward those who earnestly seek you. We need to remember this week, Lord, help us when there are times where we're between the Red Sea and the Pharaoh seeing red, that that's a great time to come boldly to the throne of grace, not to the throne of justice, because I'd be turned away. The best 15 minutes of my life wouldn't get me into heaven and wouldn't get me your favor. But I don't look at the best 15 minutes of my life. I look at the best that ever was, your one and only son. For you so loved the world, you gave your one and only son, that whoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Because of Jesus, I can come boldly to the throne of grace. Not arrogantly, but boldly. I know I won't be turned away. I can knock importunatively. I can, I can always pray and not give up. I can pray without ceasing. I can ask for, for good gifts that are treats, not just our daily bread, but I can ask for, for an egg or a fish, which were treats in their world, and you don't give a snake or a rock. Because unlike the, the sour, dour, supposed Christian who says, be careful what you pray for, or God, I'll give it to you. You're a good God, and you know how to give good gifts to your children. Now, that doesn't mean we should be abusive. We shouldn't seek things that are just for our own benefit. But it does mean that you give us blessings. And uh, we want to we honor you by remembering your blessings. Give us the faith to be faithful. Give us the confidence in Jesus to be unwavering. Give us a holy boldness to open our lips to tell others about this Jesus who continually provides we think in the book of Samuel how you provided for them. And then he set up a stone of remembrance, which we saw in Joshua, but a little bit different in Samuel. He called it Ebenezer. And uh, hitherto to this point has the Lord helped us. You've helped us through hyperinflation. You've helped us through relocation. You've helped us through significant disruption. And you'll help us today because you're the same God yesterday today and forever. And I pray that if there's anyone here today who knows about you but doesn't know you, and you want to know this God personally, you want Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, then I want to just tell you that the Bible says that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone from, from the kindly grandma to the Apostle Paul who was once a murderer of Christians. He was going to another country. He was heading to Damascus, Syria to round up and root out Christians. And on his mission of carnage, you appeared to him and said, I am real and I am Christ. And he changed the trajectory of his life and went from being a murderer to the most effective missionary the world's ever known. Probably the greatest theologian the world's ever known. Uh, the most effective church planter the world's ever known. Uh, writer of 13 of the 27 books of our New Testament. Lord, you can take anyone and make us into something we could never have hoped to be because you have the cleansing power of the Holy Spirit and we receive that through your blood. So if there's someone here today 
who needs to be saved, the Bible says you must admit that you are a sinner. The Bible calls that confessing. And if anyone confesses their sin, you're faithful and just and will forgive us, but also cleanse us. The Bible calls that repentance, metanoeo in the Greek, to change your mind. What I used to think mattered doesn't matter. And we turn from the things that were worthless and running our lives to the one who made us and ask him to run our lives. The Bible says, you all who call on the name of the Lord. So you're asking this person not just to be your savior, but to be your God and to direct your steps. And so if you want to do that today, you can pray with me right here, right now. Father, forgive me, or I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior. And I know that there's no other name under heaven by which we may be saved except for Jesus, because he's your one and only Son, and you sent him to die for me that I would not have to die in my sin, but that I could live for you through Christ. And so, Lord, take me and shape me so that I would be an effective and productive ambassador for you. Amen and amen. Thank you, Sean. And we're going to have communion um, just now, their functional. But before that, um, we'd like to sing also about trusting and obeying. Um, and it is 1008. The Lord's my shepherd. And you can sing that in pieces of praise, I say. Mm-hmm. 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 Mm-h